Inventors are the ones who are best situated to know the context of their invention. And this is really critical for patent filings. But it's really important to be asking inventors the right questions to understand that context. It's important that the attorney brings to the table their strategic vision. Welcome to IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield. Our guest for this episode is attorney Jonathan Roses, a shareholder in Wolf Greenfield's pharmaceutical practice group. John works with life sciences companies in a variety of areas, including small molecule pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical formulations, medical devices, and surgical methods. John, you, before getting into law, were a medicinal chemist at a couple of companies. What prompted the career change? I have always loved chemistry, way since back in junior year of high school. I got in in the way that typical high school students get interested in chemistry. My professor blew up some stuff. So it might have been even the first day of class. He blew up three balloons. One was filled with air, one was filled with hydrogen, and one was filled with a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen. And the explosions got progressively bigger and bigger. And I said, well, this is is very interesting. This is a discipline where you can blow things up. Now I'm I'm listening. Uh, And then it may have been a few weeks later, we threw a piece of sodium metal into a glass of water and it made just an enormous explosion. I was hooked at that point. So I was all in. Of course, the high school me got interested in the explosions, but then I learned about medicinal chemistry and really how you can apply kind of the basic chemistry knowledge of what's going on to make these physical phenomenon happen to actually make molecules that can be used as drugs. So I loved that. Went into the industry as a medicinal chemist at a couple of pharma companies. And I was okay. I I was pretty good. But the problem was that my colleagues were really just on another level. And it was a time when it was it was hard to find chemists coming out of grad schools at the time. So when we were interviewing, we'd be interviewing some of really just the best graduates from the best schools, the best postdoc groups in the country, even to the point where we'd have, you know, five incredibly qualified candidates for one position. And, you know, looking down the road, I said, this is not something I can compete with. I'm okay at this, but I'm not at that level. But I was lucky enough at the time that uh, one of the the patent groups at one of the companies I was working with needed a little bit of help uh, putting together some patent applications. And they were very kind and generous with their time and and teaching me. And I immediately saw, I said, hey, this is another discipline where I can use my chemistry knowledge, attention to detail, strategic thinking, so that I can stay in the, the pharmaceutical industry, which I love, but, you know, not have to spend all day at the bench and compete with the geniuses that I was working with. It felt like a bit of a leap of faith at the time. It was uh, unquestionably the best decision I've ever made. Today, I apply my scientific knowledge and I learn something new literally every day. But, you know, recognizing that that was kind of a, a very difficult decision point back in the day, I've always tried to kind of make myself available for other people who are considering similar changes because it can feel like something pretty crazy and unprecedented. For me, it was helpful to talk to people who'd been through it because you realize that for a lot of patent attorneys, they have done exactly the same thing. So it's nice not to feel alone. Well, and especially your colleagues at Wolf Greenfield, there are so many people that have professional degrees and experience in other fields. And so I, I assume from time to time, you probably talk to young lawyers now who are considering those kind of career changes that you made. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if it was, you know, my ignorance or the fact that, you know, what we call the tech spec program, uh, where you come out of a technical school and you work at a law firm and they put you through law school, that was just getting started early on in its initiation. But it's great that this is kind of more public now and folks do know about it. So it feels like there are a lot of people who are, you know, for example, chemistry students in grad school who are 
being recruited by law firms and kind of know about this as an alternative career path. But yeah, always try to talk to those folks uh, to walk them through it because it can really be an amazing career. John, you recently gave a presentation on 2022 global patent strategies. Uh, What are some of the current challenges in patent procurement? It was an interesting session. And look, in a lot of ways, these challenges are the same they've always been. One, it's always an issue is cost. And I think for the patent world, it's particularly difficult because term of patents is effectively you know, 21 years from when you file your priority application in the U.S. And it's really hard to envision what that IP portfolio is going to look like over the next 21 years. And very much this affects small companies, uh, solo inventors, places that are starting up or going through angel investing or early rounds of financing. But frankly, it's even an issue for big companies. Everyone has a budget. At the initial stage when you're filing your first application, your provisional application, do you invest heavily in it then and get a really robust provisional application? Do you wait a year until it's time to convert that provisional application into a utility application? Keeping in mind that, you know, hopefully you'll have more financing a year down the road, maybe a better idea of what the path forward and what the IP landscape should or will look like. There are other decision points too. 30 months or two and a half years after priority generally comes the decision as to where to file internationally. And obviously there are a huge number of jurisdictions where you can do that, but as you add to that list, the costs can really skyrocket. So, you know, you have to think again in a very uh, forward-looking way, thinking about, you know, what jurisdictions are most important to your particular business model? What about your future investors, potential partners in the future, uh, and even competitors? So it's really kind of a a crystal ball sort of endeavor that's, I think, will always be challenging just inherently because of the way the process is laid out. Can you summarize a couple of key strategies for protecting IP and then how to minimize risk when filing the patents internationally? It really all starts with that initial disclosure that the IP attorney or the company gets from the inventor, or it could even be the lawyer working with the inventor themselves. Inventors, of course, are the ones who are best situated to know the context of their invention. And this is really critical for patent filings. What was known by people working in the field at the time of filing? This is what we call the prior art. And this really sets the entire stage for the invention patent application. But it's really important to be asking inventors the right questions to understand that context. Again, inventors are really well situated and they are really are experts in the area. But it's important that the, the attorney brings to the table their strategic vision because you have to think about how broadly can you file. Oftentimes, an inventor you know, may invent, let's say, a specific widget. And sure, they've invented that one particular widget and they're entitled to get claims on that. But when you bring that strategic thinking to it, you can really think about, well, how much broader than this widget can we get claims to? You know, what is the scope of our rights that we're entitled to here? And that's a really important process where the attorney and the inventor have to work together to think about how best to apply that and get the most advantageous filing you can. When you're filing internationally, there's another big issue, and that's the fact that different foreign jurisdictions handle patent prosecution differently in ways that there are a lot of pitfalls out there for the unwary. And some of these are procedural Some are purely technical, some are substantive. And it's really important to kind of be thinking about all of that way back at the time you're getting that invention disclosure from the inventor and drafting that initial provisional patent application. And that's some of what we talked about at the Life Sciences Patent Network presentation. And what are some of the key considerations for international patent prosecution? 
One of the big ones, a hot topic in Europe right now is what's called the right to priority. It's somewhat complicated doctrine, but basically what it means is that you have to get the technicalities of patent ownership exactly right at the time you file your international or PCT application. It turns out, based on recent decisions from the European Board of Appeals and some cases that have gone up there, that this is just something where if you get it wrong at that frozen point of time, it is something you simply cannot fix later, and it can result in you losing the rights to your European patent. So this turns out to be something that you can't go back and fix later. You're stuck at that frozen point of time. And what can happen is that your own priority document disclosure can be used to reject your claims. So this is a big topic and there is increased focus on it now. But again, you're at this relatively early stage and it's important to be having a perspective that goes beyond just the U.S. There's also other jurisdictions and, and particular issues that come up. You know, for example, in China, they rely heavily on the presence of working examples in the application. It depends on the examiner. And as you can imagine, there's an enormous examining core in China. But on many occasions, you can be limited to get claims on only what you've exemplified in your application. So you can imagine if you have a great idea that has wide applicability and you have one example of how, how to do that, how to carry that out, that can be a big cutback in terms of the rights you can get. So it's really important to bolster those examples. And then one other consideration that comes up in a lot of different jurisdictions is the timing for when you file what are called continuing applications. So this is where you file your initial application and either you prosecute it through and you get allowance and you're going to get some claims out of it, or there's a final rejection and you have to reboot prosecution in some way. So what you do is you file another application that includes the same disclosure, relies on the same priority date, and you basically just continue prosecution and try to get additional subject matter. So in the U.S., this is really straightforward. There's certain deadlines to do that. It's pretty clear. You go ahead and you file and you're good to go. But then there are other places like in Japan where those deadlines uh, come up in very different places. They're not set in advance. It can be you get a, a letter from your Japanese associate. They say, oh, we've received a notice of allowance. That's it. It's too late now. You can't file any divisional applications. You had to have done that before. So it's important to get good advice from attorneys who know the international landscape, but of course, primarily attorneys in the jurisdiction with boots on the ground because they will know those rules. Let's turn to the FDA's orange book, valuable because it protects brand name drug uh, products from generic competition. But there have been fewer challenges to orange book patents launched at the USPTO in recent years. Can you give us some insight what's going on? Yeah, and this is another interesting area. We actually had the USPTO release its uh, own updated study on orange book and biologics post-grant challenges trends back in August. In the grand scheme of things, challenges to Orange Book in these post-grant proceedings is still really low. I think they reported 4% of all the challenges. But as you indicated, of course, this has an outsized value because these Orange Book listed patents tend to have an extremely high value. There are generally a limited number of patents that will cover approved medicines, uh, and as a result, they can have an outsized impact. So just to set a little bit of context, post-grant proceedings have a two-step procedure generally. There's an initial submission by a patent challenger, an optional response, and then the board at the USPTO Patent Trial and Appeal Board decides whether to institute a full trial based on that challenge or whether to dismiss the challenge. So at that initial institution rate, 
we see pretty similar numbers based on this recent study. So orange book listed patents fare just a little bit better than the overall population. I think the number was 62% instituted versus 64%. So very, very similar. But the big difference is once a trial is instituted at the final outcome, orange book patents are faring much, much better than everything else. So for example, some of the numbers they put through is that all claims have been upheld in these orange book patents 15% of the time, whereas that happens only 4% of the time in general population. And the numbers break down and they provide a lot of statistics there, but it's very interesting. And I think a lot of these orange book patents do tend to be quite strong. I don't think the quality of the challenges have gone down much at all. I think the folks who are challenging these patents are still putting in just as much effort as they always have. But it's interesting to see that the relative strength of these Orange Book patents uh, continues to be strong in surviving these post-grant proceedings. Let's talk a little bit about skinny labels. What are they and what's happening in the area of induced infringement? Oh yeah. So this was another big hot topic in 2021. So a skinny label, uh, also called a Section 8 carve-out, This lets a generic drug manufacturer develop a generic version of a drug that's already been approved and marketed, but where there's more than one indication for which the drug is approved, they can carve out one or more of those indications. You know, a useful uh, illustrative example, say you have your innovator pharma company and they get approval for a drug to treat hypertension. So they have patents that cover the compound, the drug itself, dosage forms, you know, what it looks like when it's in a pill or tablet or a solution. And then patents claims to methods for treating hypertension. Fast forward maybe a few years. Now they conduct some new trials on a new indication and they get approval for that. Let's say it's congestive heart failure. Now they can file a new patent application based on that discovery uh, of its ability to treat congestive heart failure. But because that discovery came so much further down the road than the initial discovery of the drug itself that led to those patents, you now have a patent that expires far after the other ones and that uh, initial method of treating hypertension patent. Normally what happens in the, in the generic drug scheme, what we call the Hatch-Waxman Act, a generic company would have to wait until all of those patents expire in order to avoid being sued or challenge and knock out all of those patents. But let's say, you know, those initial compound uh, dosage method of treating hypertension patents have now expired and all that you have left is that method of treating congestive heart failure patent. What a generic can do is say, we're going to carve out that indication from our label. We're going to make a generic version of this drug, but we're not going to tell anyone that it's for treating congestive heart failure. They carve out the indication and now they can come on the market earlier. That seems like a neat way around this, but these skinny labels are not an absolute bar to being sued. And what happened last year is we had a case that everyone was in up in arms about and said, wow, is this the end of the skinny label? because we had a situation exactly like the hypothetical I I laid out where a competitor had put out a a generic drug that had carved out the congestive heart failure indication. And the federal circuit said, no, you're still liable for infringing that patent because you've induced doctors to infringe. You've basically told through your marketing materials by saying your your drug is equivalent to the original approved drug. You're basically instructing doctors to prescribe this for congestive heart failure. So this was the GSK versus Teva case, and there's been a lot of ink spilled over this. You know, the federal circuit was careful to take pains to say, ah, we're restricting this to the facts of the case, um, trying to calm down folks. But I think this is an area where we're going to see a lot of additional activity, where generics try to probe how far that goes. And likewise, on the innovator side, trying to bring suit based on induced infringement, even where you have a skinny label. 
So I think that's going to be a, an interesting topic to watch over the next year. Speaking of interesting topics, the issue of patent-eligible subject matter, otherwise known as Section 101 cases, is always in the spotlight, and it will be in 2022. Senator Leahy from Vermont will be retiring at the end of this term, so uh, he'll be around for at least 2022, and he's been a pivotal figure in, in these cases. Can you explain a little bit about what's going on? Do you expect any changes in 2022 as we move along? This is something that everyone talks about, you know, the evolution of the case law on Section 101 and patent eligible subject matter. It's an area where people throw a lot of barbs and I get that and it can be frustrating for stakeholders for sure. I also really empathize with decision makers who weigh these 101 challenges. And that's just because of where we are in the law. Right now, the Supreme Court has laid out a two-step procedure for determining whether a claim is directed to an abstract idea, a law of nature, or a natural phenomenon. If it is, it's simply not eligible for patent protection under the patent code. But most of this focuses on what's an abstract idea, and that's really hard to say what that is. You know, we had a recent case which essentially found that we had a claim to a specific device. It was a camera that had a plurality of image sensors and lenses. They took separate images and then merged those images. And the finding there was that that's an abstract idea of taking two pictures and using the pictures to enhance each other in some way. And sure, I get that. That is kind of a way to reduce that idea to an abstract idea. But it seems like that's illustrative of you have a claim to a physical device that has physical components. How far can this abstract idea be taken? In a sense, every invention can be an abstract idea. You know, the abstract idea of Using a particular drug to treat a particular disease, I suppose, could be considered abstract. And I'm not trying to, to make light of this. I just think it really is difficult. So for these reasons, I think this is why folks are really looking forward to legislative solution here, because uh, just because of the way the case law has come down, it's really hard to envision the Supreme Court saying, wipe the slate clean, let's start over. And you mentioned the, the retirement of Senator Leahy, and I think that has maybe brought a glimmer of hope that we might get a legislative reform here. So Leahy is currently chair of the subcommittee on intellectual property for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And this is a really important chairmanship. He was also, of course, the co-author of the Leahy Smith America Invents Act in 2011, which brought big changes to our patent system. But I think folks see him as kind of defending that law and sort of resisting additional changes. So we've had other folks who have tried to make other modifications to the patent law and, and, and Leahy's come out against those. We had the Stronger Patents Act of 2019 uh, that was sponsored by U.S. Senators Chris Coons and Tom Cotton, and then Representatives uh, Stivers and Bill Foster. Leahy had come out against those, but it's very interesting because now that he said he's not going to rerun in 2022, I wonder if there's just an easier path forward for legislative reforms like this. When it comes to the Supreme Court, the recent announcement that uh, Justice Breyer is going to step down at the end of this term too, will that impact the potential court rulings in the future? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, in so many ways, of course, it depends on who's nominated and, and ultimately confirmed to that position. So we'll have to see. Uh, the Supreme Court tends to not often dabble in intellectual property cases, we did have one recently in the copyright area, which was very interesting. Sort of everyone in the field gets very excited when that happens. But again, there's just so much precedent out there uh, in case law going back decades that indicates how the courts should consider these challenges to patent eligible subject matter. 
that it's hard for me to envision the court, even reformed with a, a new appointee, kind of saying, let's revisit this. This is a mess. We've got to get this better. It seems like they just need to take direction from Congress and just have a new statute to interpret. I think that's the most likely way this gets cleaned up. Right, let's move on to uh, the dis- discretionary denials of post-grant proceedings. They've been increasing. Do you expect that trend to continue? If so, what's the impact on patent holders? It's interesting because the USPTO is an administrative agency and they sort of set policies and continue with those policies. A few months ago, maybe I would have said, you know, given inertia, this is a trend that's likely to continue. But just over the last few months, things may have changed a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see. And setting the picture here, these discretionary denials were something that USPTO former director Andre Iancu was really pressing forward. Um, this resulted in designation of two key decisions as precedential, NHK and Fintiv, and the guidance has been updated so that the PTO boards, when considering whether to institute trial, they'll consider the status of co-pending district court litigation. And what this did is it led to a lot of cases, boards saying, look, if a court is going to decide this before or around the same time, we'll decide it. We'll just wait. We're going to deny institution here and we'll wait and see what the court does. And this, as you can imagine, has not been popular with patent challengers, particularly in view of the fact, which I think in some cases is totally justified and a good point, is that district courts will set schedules for hearing trials that were uh, overly ambitious at the least. So you had kind of this pretend schedule where a final resolution was going to be reached in the district court matter. Really, that was going to happen far later. And patent challengers at the PTAB were pretty frustrated because they said, look, we really could get better certainty by having this adjudicated at the PTAB. There's no chance the district court's actually going to get to it before or around then. That's the framework here, right? So we have now acting director Drew Hirschfeld, and you know he hasn't been subject to congressional approval. So he's really sitting in and for the most part, I think being seen as just continuing Andre Iancu's policies. But now we have a nominee to lead the Patent and Trademark Office, Kathy Vidal. It'll be very interesting to see if she is confirmed to the post, she could take a different path. And it's entirely possible that that could lead to a different direction here. But kind of pushing back in the other direction is the retirement of Senator Leahy that we talked about. So he's been very vocal in opposing the PTAB's discretionary denial practice. And he actually recently introduced with John Cornyn of Texas, a bill, the Restoring the America Invents Act, which would effectively abrogate the Fintiv NHK framework altogether and say that, you know, district court proceedings are something that can't be considered by the PTAB in deciding whether to institute trial. So, you know, with Leahy's voice leaving the Senate again, wonder if uh, efforts like these fizzle and maybe the practice continues. Questions that'll remain unanswered for a while, I suppose, but thanks for us to follow. Hey, let's talk a little bit about at Wolf Greenfield. The firm's post-grant practices had uh, quite a bit of success recently. Uh, what fuels the practice's success? Any examples that you can mention? Oh, yeah. And I'm really proud of the success of our post-grant group. Just recently, we secured a victory in an IPR inter-parties review proceeding for a biopharmaceutical client whose patent was challenged by a competitor. And I think this particular one was remarkable, is that we were able to defeat two petitions at the institution stage, so before trial is even instituted, convincing the board that the petitioner had failed to properly show the asserted references they were relying on 
to satisfy a particular provision of the challenge claims. And that was a really great victory, not having to go through the expense of the full trial proceeding and really knocking out those challenges at an early stage. So I thought that was a great victory there. But, you know, stepping back, I think overall the success of our group is due to the fact that we have, of course, practitioners who really live, eat, and breathe post-grant proceedings. They know them inside and out, and they know every aspect of it. So they can navigate these proceedings like nothing. But we also have this immense bench of people with deep technical backgrounds in virtually every area you can imagine. That means that we can put these two things together, and that effectively gives our clients multiple shots on goal. We know how to win on procedural grounds. We know how to frame arguments in a way that are most persuasive to the board. But we can also dig in on the technology and win on the substantive issues, such as when we point out that prior art references failed to disclose key provisions of the challenge claims. And that latter was exactly the reason why we secured denial of institution in that recent case I mentioned. Our thanks to attorney John Roses for sharing his thoughts with us on IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield. We hope you'll subscribe to our series of conversations related to IP matters on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on legal matters related to IP, we, of course, invite you to visit our website at www.wolfgreenfield.com. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of IP Talk with Wolf Greenfield.